happy Sabbath. And it's good to be back here this evening. I missed being here last night. So it's nice to be back. And I'm glad that I can start the Sabbath off with, with you here in Princess Town this evening. Before we get into our message, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us this week. We thank you now that we can take another look at your message for our time. And I pray that you would speak through me in a special way this evening. May the message given be what is needed for each one of us here. And may we surrender our lives fully to Jesus as a result of this message. This is my prayer in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, I've been blessed as we've gone through the prophecies this week. And just by way of review, we have seen the overview of the book of Daniel and how the visions of that book point us to the judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary that began in 1844, as well as to the second coming of Jesus, showing us that where we are in history right now is the focal point of prophetic history, and we have the privilege of being alive during that time. Then we saw an overview of the book of Revelation. Then we looked at the Second Advent Movement. Wednesday night, we looked at Satan's end-time deception and the powers that he will work through at the end of time to get nearly all the world to follow after him, but God will still have a remnant who will be faithful. Tonight, we are going to look at the message to the Laodicean church. I mentioned this in passing on Monday night when we did an overview of the book of Revelation, but tonight we're going to go through each verse of this message. And as I've studied the message to the Laodicean church over the last few years, I have come to realize just how important the message is in these verses. Because the message to Laodicea is the message to us. You know that, right? Remember we, we talked about the meaning of the word Laodicea? What does the word Laodicea mean? means a judged people, meaning that it is the church of the judgment hour. And we are that church because we saw from the book of Daniel that the judgment began in 1844. So therefore, the message to the church of Laodicea is the message to the church of the judgment hour. So, I want to read a statement to you from the writings of Ellen White that describes the importance of this message. And as I've said before, I am so thankful for the clear counsel that God has given to us through the writings of Ellen White. Amen? And I want to read to you a statement from, page, from early writings, page 270, that tells us just how important the message to the Laodicean church is. This is Ellen White speaking. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth 
Some will not bear the straight testimony. They will rise up against it, and this is what will cause the shaking among God's people. I saw that the testimony of the true witness has not been half-heeded. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed, if not entirely disregarded. This testimony must work deep repentance. All who truly receive it will obey it and be purified. Now this is a, a very clear and actually a very amazing statement. Because what Ellen White says here is that the message to the Laodicean church will bring a shaking to the Judgment Hour church. Now, here's the point. This message, who is it given by? It's given by the faithful and true witness. Who is the faithful and true witness? If you remember from this Monday night, Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. And in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 it says, Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness. This is Jesus speaking to the judgment hour church. This is Jesus speaking to us, and specifically, he is giving us a faithful and true testimony of our condition. And when that message comes to this church so that it is received the way that Jesus wants it to be received, it will bring a shaking among Adventism. You know that a shaking is coming, right? Those who are not faithful will be shaken out. Those who are faithful will stay in. So we want to know what this message is that brings the shaking so that when it comes, we will stay in. Amen? This message is called the straight testimony. You know, sometimes I hear preachers say, I'm going to give you the straight testimony tonight. Well, the straight testimony is actually defined as being the message to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And the straight testimony is given by Jesus. Notice, it's not the work of man to give the straight testimony. It's the work of Jesus to give the straight testimony. Amen? And when this message has its effect, it will, as Ellen White says, it will cause those who hear the message to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. So there will be people in Adventism who will receive this message and they will say, whoa, I need to wake up. We need to give this message straight the way Jesus gives this message to the church as described in the Bible. And they will give that message with power and in a direct manner. And when they do so, some will not bear the straight testimony and they will rise up against it. And when that happens, you will have some who are giving the message with power because they have received the message. Then you will have others who say, no, I don't want to hear this. And they will fight against it. And that is what will bring the shaking in the church. And you know, we are living so near to the coming of Jesus that it is time for us to stand up for the truth, whatever the price may be. Amen? It is time for us to share the truth with the love of Christ, but to stand for it, though the heavens fall. 
And Ellen White says that this testimony, as of the time she wrote this, has not been half-heeded and really has almost been entirely disregarded. And when this message comes, it will bring deep repentance. So do you want to know what the straight testimony is? Let's look at the verses of Revelation 3, 14 to 22, to find out what exactly is this straight testimony that will come to Adventism that will bring the shaking. Revelation 3, verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. We see that this is Jesus, and the word Amen means trustworthy. He's, the, he's trustworthy, he's a faithful and true witness, and it says that he's the beginning of the creation of God, or in other words, he is the Creator. Now, do you remember when we studied the three angels' messages? In the first angel's message, it says, to fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And it says, and worship Him who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. So in the first angel's message, it announces the judgment hour, and it says that God is Creator. To the Laodiceans, the Laodicean church is the church of the judgment hour, and Christ is reminding Laodicea, I am your creator. So you see a close connection between the Laodicean message and the three angels' messages. You see that? And specifically, the fact that God is creator in Revelation 14, in the first angel's message, when it says, Worship him who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters, that connects to the fourth commandment where it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And it says, For in six days the Lord made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that in them is. So there's a connection here to the Laodicean church, not only with God as the creator, not only with the judgment hour message, but with the Sabbath message. Because in the judgment hour, the Sabbath message is a key component to the judgment hour message. And we've talked about that. Sabbath is a sign of our sanctification. Now, notice what Jesus says. After he announces his title, notice what's the very first thing that he says to Laodicea. In verse 15, he says, I know thy works. Now, where I have come from in the United States, the term works is thought of in a very negative sense. And it is true that Scripture makes it clear that our righteousness is as filthy rags and that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. Works can never save us. However, Jesus says, I know your works. Therefore, he seems to be interested in the behavior or the actions of the Laodicean church. Not because those works bring salvation, but because apparently the works that Laodicea is performing is causing him to be concerned about their condition. Now notice, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, I just quoted it, that we are saved by grace through faith, and not of works, lest any man should boast. But then it goes on to say, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the Christian will have good works, right? Now works will not save us, but those who are following Jesus will have good works. 
or works that reflect that they were followers of Christ. And Jesus says to Laodicea, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, here we see that Laodicea, it's not hot, it's not cold, it's lukewarm, so the works of Laodicea are causing it to be in a lukewarm condition. Now we've heard, I mean, how many of you have heard for a long time that Laodicea is in a lukewarm condition? Okay, now, when we look at that, we can say, okay, we're lukewarm, we just need to get more on fire for Jesus. But could it be more than that? Why is Laodicea in a lukewarm state? Well, you know, I came across an interesting study that was done and reported on in the Adventist Review a number of years ago. And here is what the survey asked Seventh-day Adventists. The, they asked people, how many of you have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? That's a good question, right? How many of you have assurance of eternal life? Also, how many of you study the Bible every day? And how many of you have family worship every day? So these were the four questions. Now, let's look at the numbers. 73, no, 63% said that they have an intimate relationship with Christ. Now, I hope that it's a higher percentage here at Princess Town. Amen? We should all have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Amen? Now, so 63% say that they have an intimate relationship with Christ. Now, here's the next one. 73% say that they have assurance of salvation. So 63% say, yes, I have a really good relationship with Jesus. 10% higher, or 73% say, yes, I know that I am going to heaven. Now, hopefully it's a higher percentage here than 73%, amen? Now, let's look at those other two questions, daily Bible study and daily family worship. Guess how many, or guess what the percentage was of Seventh-day Adventists who say they study the Bible every day? 34% and 33% have daily family worship. Oh yes, I have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh yes, I know that I am going to heaven even if I'm not spending time with Him right now and even if I'm not helping my family to spend time with Jesus. I am on my way to the kingdom. I might not be that on fire for Jesus, but I know about Him and so I'm on my way to heaven. Could that describe some of us? You know, there's a clear disconnect to say that you're on your way to heaven to be with your best and dearest friend that you have an intimate relationship with, but you don't spend time with him. Do you see the disconnect? That would be like me saying that I have a wonderful relationship with my wife and hardly ever talk to her. And in fact, there's been a few times that I've had to travel and be away from her, and that would be like me hardly ever calling her when I'm away from her, and wishing that I could prolong my vacations when I'm away from her because I'm having such a great time apart from her. 
and the Laodicean church, our church, the church of the judgment hour, the church that is supposed to be preparing for Jesus to come, we believe that we are in good standing with Christ and yet we're not spending time with him. And so when Jesus sends a message to us that describes our true condition, some will wake up and say, you know what? I'm in a bad state. I'm not spending the time with Jesus that I need to be spending with him. I need to get on my knees and to repent and to spend that time with him every day. Lord, forgive me. I thought I was on my way to heaven even though I wasn't spending time with you. Help me to spend that time and to actually learn to love you and to love spending time with you each and every day and others will say I don't want to hear about that just tell me about Jesus once a week when the pastor or the elder preaches from up front and that's all I need for the week now notice what Jesus says continuing on because we are going to see why Laodicea is in a lukewarm state and notice what Jesus says because you're lukewarm I will spew you out of my mouth. Now, do you know what the word spew means? It means to vomit. Which means that Laodicea's condition is nauseating to Christ. Now, that is very serious. Jesus says, if you don't change, I will spew you or vomit you out of my mouth because your lukewarm condition is nauseating to me. You're not too hot. You're not cold. You're, right, you're in the middle. You think you can kind of play in the middle and not go all the way for Christ. And that condition is causing me to want to spew you out of my mouth. And in verse 17, we, ex we see exactly why Jesus says this about Laodicea. Revelation 3, verse 17 says, and this is why Laodicea is lukewarm, not hot or not cold. Verse 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So here's what Laodicea says about itself. Laodicea says, hey, I'm rich. I am increased with goods. I don't need anything else. Now, do you think that Jesus is saying, you know, you Laodicean people, you Seventh-day Adventists, you Church of the Judgment Hour, all of you are just so wealthy that it's causing you to lose your focus on me. Do you think that's what Jesus means? Now, it could be true that there are some of us here this evening that have so much money that we hardly know what to do with it, that we focus more on getting money than anything else and just have a, a great, wealthy life. Does that sound like most of us, though? Probably not, myself included. We, most Seventh-day Adventists, the world over, the issue for Seventh-day Adventists is, is not having too much money. You know what I mean? You don't have all these Seventh-day Adventists that are millionaires and so on and who have five houses and five cars and because of that heaven is is here on earth and they don't really care about going to the real heaven that's true of a few Adventists I might know of a few but that's probably not what Jesus is really talking about because in Revelation 3 verse 18 the very next verse 
Jesus says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich. Now, do you think Jesus is really telling us to go buy literal gold and to put it into a literal fire? No, but what Jesus is saying is you say you are rich and increased with goods, but in reality what you need to do is to buy gold tried in the fire so that you really will be rich. So what does it mean to think that you are rich and in order to really be rich you have to buy gold tried in the fire? What does that mean? Well, let me show you a couple of Bible verses. Let me take you first to James chapter 2, verse 5. James chapter 2, verse 5. James chapter 2, verse 5 says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Here in James chapter 2, verse 5, it says, To be rich is to be rich in faith. And then let me take you to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Because remember, Jesus said, in order to be rich, he says, I counsel of you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich, right? Well, notice what 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says about gold being tried in the fire. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So you know when Jesus says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich? What Jesus is saying is, look, you need to have the trial of your faith just like gold is tried in the fire so that your faith will be purified. And what Jesus is saying is this, you say you are rich, but in reality you are not. You need to buy gold tried in the fire. And what 1 Peter 1 verse 7 and James chapter 2 verse 5 says is to be rich, is to have faith. Or if you have gold that is tried in the fire, that is as if you have faith that is on trial through the trials of this life. So what Jesus is saying to Laodicea is this, you say you are rich, you think you have faith, but in reality you don't. You need to buy gold tried in the fire. And Laodicea thinks, yes, we are rich, we are increased with goods, we don't need anything else because we have faith. We have saving faith. We have righteousness by faith. We have assurance of salvation. We are on our way to heaven because we have an intimate relationship with Jesus even though we aren't spending time with Him. And when the trials of life come, Laodicea is like the children of Israel who say, where is God now? I wonder if God even exists. Does, if God really exists, how come He's allowing me to pass through this trial? And Jesus says to Laodicea, if you want to have faith, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, which means as gold is tried in the fire, the impurities are removed. And if you allow your faith to be tried in the fire, the impurities of your life will be removed so I can refine you like gold in the fire and make you into the kind of person that can stand in the judgment. After all, you are the Laodicean church, the church of the judgment hour. Does that make sense? 
But Laodicea wants the kind of faith that allows them to pass through on cruise control without having to pass through trials. And they say, Lord, I just want you to come so I can go to heaven and give me the easiest pathway possible here on this earth. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. In order for you to represent me in the judgment as part of my last day people, you must pass through the trials of life so that I can refine you and use you as a demonstration to the onlooking universe. Remember, you have the Laodicean church as the seventh church of the seven churches. And out of the Laodicean church we found in the seals comes the 144,000. Laodicea has a problem because Laodicea thinks it has saving faith, even though it really doesn't. And you know, when it said that 73% report they have assurance of salvation, even though 33% have daily Bible study, you know, at least where I came from in the United States, a lot of my friends and fellow church members, the thing that they primarily cared about more than anything else was assurance of salvation. Now here's the thing. It is not wrong to have confidence of your standing with Christ. Amen? However, when your focus turns from giving glory to God and allowing God to use your life to rightly represent His character to the world so that just like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, you're not saying, well, will I lose my salvation if I bow down to the image? Maybe I can just bow down and ask for forgiveness later. No, they were saying, we're just going to give glory to God and do what is right because we love Jesus. And that's what God is looking for with Laodicea. But when our focus changes to, well, do I have assurance of eternal salvation? Then when an issue comes before us, whether it's in our personal life or maybe it's an issue at the church board or you name it, the question we ask so many times is not, what will rightly represent God's name to this community or to my friends or to my family? We ask, will I, will I lose my salvation if I compromise on this point? So we have a standard that Scripture has set forth. We see the standard, but then we see, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, if we lower the standard a little bit, we'll still have assurance of salvation, so it's okay. And what happens is over time, God has His ideal here, and then, but God's people say, well, we won't lose our salvation if we lower the standard. So we lower it and lower it and lower it. And after a number of years and after a few generations go by, you can almost hardly recognize what used to be a standard that God had set forth in Scripture. You see how that happens? And what God is looking for in His judgment hour people is not people who are looking for a minimum standard to get by, but for people who say, because of what Jesus has done for me, I will live my life completely for Him. Now, let's go through some of the, the individual components. So we see Laodicea says, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And Jesus says, actually, you need to buy gold tried in the fire so that you really will be rich because in reality you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And here's the thing. If you are naked, you don't have the righteousness of Christ. You see that? If you are naked, you do not have the righteousness of Christ. And so Laodicea thinks it has saving faith, but in reality it's naked without the righteousness of Christ. And this puts 
our church, our judgment hour church, in a new light when we realize, look, we're going around thinking, hey, I'm covered with the righteousness of Christ. But Christ is saying, no, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, why does Christ say that? What is it about being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Does Scripture give us any clue as to what this could be? Well, this word wretched in Revelation 3, it's found one other place in all of Scripture. In the Greek and in the English, it's the same word. And in the Greek, it's the Greek word talaiparos. And in the English, it's translated as wretched. And it's only one place else in all of Scripture. Do you know where that is? It's found in Romans chapter 7. How many of you are familiar with Romans chapter 7? Let's look at this. In Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now, who is this wretched man of Romans 7? Well, if you skip back a few verses to verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, in the book of Romans, in chapter 6, it describes the concept of either being a slave to sin or a slave or servant to righteousness. And... The, uh, the two options you have is you can be a servant or a slave to God or a servant or a slave to sin. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul shows what it means to be a slave to sin because notice what he says in verse 14. He says, I am carnal, sold under sin. If you are sold under something, that means you are a slave to it. Do you see that? You are a slave to sin when you are carnal. So guess what happens when you are carnal, sold under sin, or a slave to sin? Notice what verse 15 says. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. So here's what it's like to be a slave to sin. You don't do the things you want to do, and you do the things you don't want to do. And that describes what it means to be a slave. Because a slave doesn't do what he wants to do, and he, so he doesn't do what he wants to do, and he does what he does not want to do, because his slave master directs his life. The slave does not have freedom to do what he would on his own. And the wretched man, wretched man of Romans 7 is carnal, sold under sin, not doing the things he wants to do, and doing the things that he doesn't want to do. And when you come to verse 23, you see that he is in captivity to the law of sin. Again, it's slavery. And he says, O wretched man that I am. So in other words, this is what the man of Romans 7... He, actually, in um, verse... 22 it says for i delight in the law of god after the inward man so here is a person who says i see the law of god i like it i want to do that but you know what that law of sin brings me into captivity and so the old man of sin rules my life so that he causes me to do the things that i don't want to do even when i want to follow god oh wretched man that i am i see that the law of god is good but I can't keep it. 
I don't have power to do so. Oh, wretched man that I am. But you know, there's a difference between the man of Romans 7 and the Laodicean church. The Laodicean church is wretched and thinks that it's okay. And in fact, there are people even in the Christian church, even in the Adventist church, that go around and say, you know what? If you have the Romans 7 experience, it's okay. Christ is covering you with His righteousness even though you're sinning and you know that you shouldn't be and you're still falling and you're not gaining the victory and you're repeatedly and habitually falling into the same sins over and over again. It's okay. Christ covers you. You have righteousness by faith. Don't worry about it. And yet Christ says, no, if you have the wretched experience of Romans 7, you are naked without the righteousness of Christ. And you know, when you go to the book of Zechariah 3, that's the story where Joshua is standing before the high priest and he's clothed with filthy garments. And you see that then Joshua is clothed with the garment of Christ's righteousness. But what happens before Joshua is clothed with that garment of righteousness? The filthy garments are taken off. And you know what Laodicea wants? Laodicea wants Christ to cover us with His righteousness while we still have filthy garments on. And Christ says, no, wait a minute. Let me take your filthy garments off, then I will give you my righteousness. So Laodicea is wretched. And you're starting to see now why this message will bring the shaking to Adventism. Because there will be Seventh-day Adventists who will say, you know what? I knew that God could give me victory. I, it just wasn't clear to me. But now I see through the power of faith and through the grace of God, He can give me victory over the sins of my life. Praise the Lord. I give my heart to You fully, Jesus. I surrender my life to You. I will be crucified with You so that old man of sin will no longer rule my life and I will live in harmony with You every day of my life through Your grace. And they will then pour forth the straight truth with power. But then others will say, no, don't tell me this. I like my assurance of salvation the way it is right now. I like the fact that I can just keep on sinning and sinning and sinning until Jesus comes. I like the fact that even if I lose my temper at my spouse every day, I don't have to worry about my salvation standing with God. I like the fact that if I never pay tithe, I never have to worry about my salvation with God. I like the fact that if I only think about Christ when I come to church on Sabbath, that I don't have to worry about my salvation with God. Don't tell me that I need to change my life through the power of Christ I like my condition the way it is and when this message comes with power to Adventism a shaking will take place and those who were faithful will follow Christ completely and those who reject the message will be shaken out in preparation to receive the mark of the beast and that is why I feel the burden to share this message with you so that each one of us here will follow Christ completely now you notice, Jesus says that Laodicea is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now this word miserable comes from the Greek word eleanos, and it's found only in one other place in Scripture as well, in the Greek, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, which says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, 
We are of all men most miserable. You know what Jesus is saying to Laodicea? You better wake up out of your lukewarm condition because you think you have saving faith and you really don't. So you think you have hope in Christ. You think you're on your way to heaven. But the reality is that hope is only going to be for this life because if you don't change, you're going to come to the judgment and find that you are naked and you're going to be found on the wrong side of the judgment. And I love you too much to stay this way. I want you to get out of your misery condition that's causing you to have a false hope so that you can repent and have the true righteousness of Christ so that you can be found faithful in the judgment and be in the kingdom of God. Amen? And notice, not only is Laodicea wretched and miserable, Laodicea is poor, and if Laodicea is poor, that means it is not rich, and if it is not rich, it does not have saving faith. And Laodicea is blind, so you have a bunch of Laodiceans, you have a bunch of God's people in the church of the judgment hour who are walking around spiritually naked, and yet they think they have Christ's righteousness. Have mercy on us, Lord. May we not be that way, amen? But yet the Laodicean church thinks that it has Christ's righteousness, and yet it is blind and does not see that it is really naked. Now, after going through all that, it could be somewhat discouraging to say, whoa, this sounds really bad. How are we ever going to get out of this? Well, you know, Ellen White says in Review and Herald, August 28, 1894, the counsel of the true witness does not represent those who are lukewarm as in a hopeless case. Amen? There is yet a chance to remedy their state, and the Laodicean message is full of encouragement. For the backslidden church may yet buy the gold of faith and love, may yet have the white robe of the righteousness of Christ, that the shame of their nakedness need not appear. Amen? We still have a chance. If we're in the lukewarm condition, God in His great mercy, Jesus, the faithful and true witness, is giving it to us straight so that we will wake up before it's too late. Amen? Now notice, what does it mean to have the righteousness of Christ? It does not mean to have your filthy garments covered over by Christ's righteousness. Notice what Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons, pages 311 and 312. The robe of Christ's righteousness, woven in the loom of heaven, has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. Did you hear that? By Christ's obedience, He has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. Now listen to this. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with His heart. The will is merged in His will. The mind becomes one with His mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to Him. We live His life. Do you want to live the life of Jesus here on this earth? And notice what she says. When we live his life, this is what it means to be clothed with a garment of his righteousness. So here's what Laodicea needs. 
Laodicean needs to learn to live the life of Christ here on this earth, to submit ourselves to Christ, to have our hearts united with His heart, to have our will merged in His will, to have our mind to become one with His mind, to have our thoughts brought into captivity to Him, then we will live His life, and this is what it means to be clothed with the garment of His righteousness. And this is what Laodicea is lacking because Laodicea is naked. Now, notice what Jesus says, continuing on in verse 18. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. We saw that this is faith and love. Laodicea needs faith and Laodicea needs love. And you know, if we have the love of Christ, which goes right along with his faith and his righteousness, we would see that love more apparent in our churches so that there wouldn't be so many fights in our churches between fellow brethren. You know, it's a sad thing, but it's often true that some of our worst enemies are fellow church members where we go to church. That shouldn't be. We should love each other with the love of Christ. Amen? And then Jesus says, I, and you, to buy white raiment that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And then notice verse 19, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent. You know, the work of repentance and the message of repentance is a very important message for our church today because so many in Laodicea say, just tell me that Jesus loves me, but don't tell me that I need to change. Yes, we need to give the message that Jesus loves us, but we also need to have the message that Jesus loves us so much that He tells us our true condition so that we can repent and change to be like Him. Amen? Now notice, what happens when this message is received. I'm going to go back to the same quote where I read about how the shaking would come when this message is received. This is Early Writings, page 271. I heard those clothed with the armor speak forth the truth with great power. It had effect. I asked what had made this great change. An angel answered, it is the latter rain the refreshing from the presence of the Lord, the loud cry of the third angel. You know what that means? That means that Seventh-day Adventists who receive this message and say, Lord, forgive me, I repent of my lukewarm, backslidden state of thinking that I could just sin and live and be covered with the righteousness of Christ. Now I realize that I'm naked. I repent and I ask You to give me Your life and to clothe me with Your righteousness. When that happens, God will pour out his latter reign upon Adventists and we will give the loud cry of the third angel. So in order to give the messages that we've been talking about, we must receive the message here in Revelation 3. And you know, a lot of times we say, well, you know, if I just pray a couple of times, the Lord will give me his latter reign and I'll go forth with power. You know, Ellen White says in the Testimonies, in volume 1, that it, this message will not accomplish its work in a few short months. 
It is designed to arouse the people of God, to discover them their backslidings, and to lead them to zealous repentance. So it's not going to be something that after one revival series like this, all of a sudden we're going to receive the latter rain. What the Lord is going to do is He will have a revival meeting like this, and then He will test us. We may have more trials, but our faith will be tested, and this will be an opportunity for us to exercise faith in Christ and to allow Him to lead us. Now, as I finish, I'm going to look at the last, two, two ver- or the last three verses of this message, especially verses 20 and 21. What does Laodicea need in order to receive the righteousness of Christ? Here in verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You know what that means? Jesus is standing and knocking on the door of the hearts of Laodicea. He's knocking on our hearts. But you know what that means? That means for Laodicea, Jesus is on the outside. And he's saying, let me come in. You think that you can be covered with an outward covering of righteousness when the inner life is still filthy. But what I want to do is I want to come into your heart and clean you up from the inside out. Let me come in. And when we allow Jesus to come in, the promise is given to us in verse 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in His throne. Here's what happens. When Jesus comes in, He lives in our hearts and He promises that we can overcome the way He overcame. Now how do we overcome? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So we overcome by faith. And if we overcome the way Jesus overcame, we will overcome through the faith of Jesus because Jesus lives in our hearts. And when He lives in our hearts, we overcome as He exercises His faith through us, which is why the third angel's message says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. What will bring the third angel's message is when Laodicea allows Jesus to come in so that we can exercise his faith and overcome as he overcame. Amen? Now let me close with this quote from Testimonies, Volume 1, page 187, about overcoming. And this is directly related to the Laodicean message. Those who come up to every point and stand every test and overcome, be the price what it may, have heeded the counsel of the true witness. And they will receive the latter rain and thus be fitted for translation. Do you realize what this message is? The Laodicean message is a message designed to fit us for translation. And the condition is to come up to every point, to stand every test and overcome, be the price what it may, when we allow Jesus to come in to our hearts. And when we allow that to happen, we will receive the latter rain and we will be fitted for translation. This message of Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22, 
is designed to fit us for translation because Laodicea is not ready for translation. Laodicea is in a condition where Christ says, if you stay the way you are, I will spew you or vomit you out of my mouth and you will not stand in the judgment. Because, but because I love you so much, I am giving you a straight message that will cause a shaking in this church and it will cause those who receive the message to have a work of deep repentance. They will receive the latter rain and they will be fitted for translation and give the loud cry of the third angel that will lighten the earth with the glory of God. And God is calling on those of you here this evening to receive this message in its fullness because the reality of it is, and I'm speaking to myself, Jesus has not yet come yet. The latter rain has not yet been poured out. We have not yet been translated. And what we need to do is we need to get down on our knees and humbly come before the Lord and say, Lord, reveal to me what sins are in my life that I am hanging on to, that I thought that I could just hang on to and still be covered with your righteousness. Lord, show it to me. Maybe it's the things I'm watching on TV. Maybe it's the way I talk to my spouse. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's not paying tithe or you name it. But whatever it may be, the Lord is coming down before you this evening. And you may be saying, boy, this is just too hard. How could Jesus ask me to give up some of these sins in my life? And I would submit to you at this very moment, Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness. Imagine Him for you, your Savior and Redeemer. He's hanging on the cross for you, dying for your sins which have put Him there. My sins which have put Him there. And imagine in your mind's eye making contact in the eye with Jesus, your Lord and Savior. And I challenge you to look Him in the eye and say, Lord, I cannot give up my sin even though You gave up everything for me. How can you do that to Jesus? He loves us so much that He has given everything for us so that we will surrender everything for Him so that He can use us to be His remnant people that He brings up out of the judgment hour, Laodicean church, who are in a terrible condition. And as we heed this message, God will have a group of people known as the 144,000 that He will translate without seeing death. How many of you want to be among that group of people? If you do, I invite you to stand with me at this time as we have a special prayer of commitment that we will be among that number, among the 144,000. Father in heaven, I thank you for those who are standing. I thank you for the commitment that is being made. Lord, we know this is a straight message. It's not necessarily easy to take in our human nature. But Lord, we thank you that you love us so much that you rebuke and chasten us so that we can have the opportunity to, to repent of our backslidden condition. Lord, we realize that if we're not as on fire now as we once have been, that we are backslidden. Help us to wake up, Lord. Help us to realize our true condition and to heed the counsel of the true witness and to let Jesus come into our hearts so that we will no longer have the condition of Romans 7 of being a slave to sin, of not doing the things we want to and of doing the things we don't want to. But may we, through the grace of Christ, have victory 
and have victory over every besetting sin so that we can stand faithful in the judgment. Thank you for your love to us. Thank you for being with us this week, and I pray that you will be with us one more time tomorrow morning as we go through the message of the 144,000. May we be among that number. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.